0: From PRX.
1: You're listening to Studio 360, and I'm Kurt Anderson.
2: You unlock this door with the key of imagination.
1: The Twilight Zone. How I loved it. In 1963, they aired this episode called The Parallel. An astronaut completes his mission and reunites with his family. But it turns out that he landed on a mirror Earth. And the family he thinks is his own? They're just lookalikes. Tell Mommy and Colonel Conacher who I am.
3: Mom, please.
4: Now, sweetheart, you say whatever's on your mind.
0: Tell them who I am.
3: I don't know who you are.
0: Maggie, this is your daddy. This is your daddy.
3: He's not my daddy. I don't know who he is.
1: At the time, in 1963, the idea of a parallel universe was pretty new. But it would soon become a science fiction trope. Like in this Star Trek episode where Captain Kirk and his squad accidentally beam into a parallel universe and encounter an Enterprise crew that is brutal, fascist, and kind of scantily clad.
5: Another Enterprise? Spark with a beard? Another Captain Kirk, another Dr. McCoy, and... In exchange. Another... If we're here then our counterparts must have been transporting up at the exact same time. Similar storms on both universes disrupted the circuits. We're here and there on our enterprise. But this
1: parallel universe stuff is really all just sci-fi fantasy, right? Maybe not. Even before Star Trek and the Twilight Zone, some physicists were beginning to suspect that our universe could be one of many and a lot more do now. If it is, the cosmos is much weirder than anything at the Cineplex. Today in Studio 360, we're gonna try to wrap our heads around this idea of multiple universes. It's a concept scientists are working to understand and explain and that artists are exploring more than ever. To begin to understand how this sci-fi idea reflects real scientific theory, We've got to get small, very small. We've got to shrink down into the world of quantum mechanics. That's the science of tiny subatomic particles and how they behave. Quantum mechanics revolutionized physics a century
6: ago. And yet, after 100 years, people still argue passionately about what it means. Max Tegmark teaches physics at MIT, more
1: specifically cosmology, the origins and nature of the universe. I decided he'd be a perfect expert for this because he's used to explaining difficult concepts like the multiverse to groggy students. From your own days as a student, you may remember something about Schrodinger's cat. There's a cat in a box and a little bit of radioactive material in the box with the cat. If the radioactive material decays, the cat dies. Sorry, kitty. If the radioactive material doesn't decay, the cat lives. But until you open the box, the cat is both alive and dead. The cat scenario was meant to be a kind of funny takedown of the dominant interpretation of quantum physics at the time. Basically, that a particle can be in two different states, doing two different things until someone looks at it. That's ridiculous, Schrodinger was essentially saying. The cat can't both be alive and dead. That just doesn't make sense. But there was a young graduate student named Hugh Everett who disagreed, and he took it even further. He said, maybe the cat is both alive and dead, meaning maybe particles are in two different states at once.
6: The only <laughs> catch is that if you take his idea seriously, then there is a multiverse, because we know that electrons can be at in two different places at once, right. as can all elementary particles, but you and I are made of elementary particles, so if they can be in two places at once, why can't we?
1: And Everett said, yeah, we can. He proposed that every time you make a decision, any decision, say you wake up in the morning and choose to put on the striped socks instead of the black ones...
6: Reality kind of forks out where there's another branch where you did exactly the opposite.
1: So now there's actually another world where you put on the black socks. A world where you went to business school instead of getting the degree in English Lit. A world where that cat is alive and an entirely different world where the cat's dead.
6: Everett said that all those worlds are equally real, it's just that there's a law of physics you can derive that explains why you will always think that your branch is the only one, because the striped socked you will have no idea of the existence of the black sock to you.
1: You may recognize this concept from movies like Sliding Doors, where Gwyneth Paltrow both does and does not catch a train, allowing her to both catch and not catch her boyfriend in bed with another woman.
3: And I just couldn't help thinking if I had just caught that bloody train, it would never have happened. I'd have been home ages ago. Oh, well, You don't want to go wondering about things like
6: that, you know, um, if only this and what if that. Uh...
1: Professor Tegmark actually likes that
6: movie. The coolest thing about all of this is it doesn't just involve what sounds like the Sliding Doors movie and other science fiction, but it actually predicts that you can build really awesome technology like quantum computers that can solve certain problems incredibly quickly using this.
1: Sadly, if we do get quantum computers before too long, Hugh Everett won't be around to see it. He died of a heart attack at the age of 51 in 1982. For many years, his ideas were dismissed, considered completely outlandish. Only toward the very end of his life, did he begin to see some recognition. Hugh Everett was more absorbed in his work than in his family. His son Mark was 19 when his father died, and they had never been close. Mark is now the front man for a band called The Eels, and some of his songs are about his father and the relationship he wished they'd had. I'm
5: turning out just like my father Though I swore I never would now
7: I can say that I have love for him. Yeah, I mean, you know, I grew up having no idea that was my father's thing when I was a kid, but <laughs> yeah. enjoying lots of Star Trek episodes and Twilight Zone episodes right. and, and countless movies that were all inspired by it. You know, I mean, I've learned most of what I know about my father from the experience of uh, making the the nova documentary about him uh, a few years ago where i got to meet a lot of people that knew him and it really ended up probably being the single most rewarding experience of my life in in so many ways
1: and this is 25 years after he died
7: yeah that's right
1: um i i'm going to play a clip from from that documentary and it's a scene where you discover these old audio cassettes that belong to your father and and decide to play them okay here's the clip
7: don't really want to play it <laughs> <laughs> I, don't I don't know what to expect
5: here. Well, here goes.
1: Well, it's been a great evening. Mm-hmm. Why don't you lead on after your drink by
0: telling us how you got started with weird quantum mechanics? Well, it was because of you and Ola Peterson one night at the Graduate College after a slosh or two of Sherry, if you might recall.
7: Wow, you, okay, uh, that does, I, that is my father's voice. Uh,
1: Mark. That's you in 2007. Hearing his voice then on those tapes, was that a big deal for you? That was a
7: particularly odd moment for me because that was literally the first time I'd heard his voice in 25 years. And uh, I couldn't remember what his voice sounded like. But then the moment I heard it, it was obvious to me that it was, oh, yeah, that's what I remember that now.
1: Do you have any specific uh, any specific memories of an encounter, a conversation with him?
7: Well, one of the most poignant memories I have is the night he died. Um, my mom and my sister were out of town; it was just me and him at home, and we probably had the most oddly human conversation we ever had. Was the last conversation we had, which was really um, unprecedented, you know, and, and odd that it happened like hours before he died but he was being very outgoing and um, you know joking around and talk we we were talking like actual people talk which was sounds weird but uh, that just didn't happen between us and and then um then the next morning I found him dead
1: do you remember what that last conversation the night before was about
7: we talked about um TV and how I was doing the dishes, which was unusual. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, just just small talk and poker. I'd just gotten into poker, and he was really into poker, and he was giving me poker advice.
1: And did he? Uh, you, you had started being a musician by then. Right?
7: Um, yeah, I was a I was a drummer for a long time already by then. Yeah. And what did he think of that? Well, you know, uh, he I always took it as a huge endorsement that he and my mom let me play drums in the house all that time. Uh-huh. You know, in that, that part in the documentary where I'm playing the tape and I'm hearing his voice uh-huh. for the first time in 25 years.
0: There's something wrong here. I showed the paradoxes and whatnot. Something should be done to change it.
7: Um, while he's talking, you start to hear me playing drums in the basement while he's talking. <laughs>
5: End of this
7: type. You know, it's a, it was it was constant. Like you know, most kids who start playing drums when they're six years old lose interest after a week or two. But I didn't lose interest for my whole life. I played every day, and I don't think I could handle a kid doing that in, in the house every day.
1: You wrote a song called "Parallels," which made me think about your father.
5: Woke up lost in a world I didn't know. know. I shook it off and I'm trying to make a go Ever get the feeling That the story isn't done And you know that you are not The only one And I know you're out there somewhere And I know that you are well Looking for an answer But only time can tell if if his
1: theories are correct, uh, then indeed uh, your father could be alive, uh, an old man in some other universe. Is that a thing you think about?
7: Yeah, that's a thing I've thought about with all all the my family that are gone now. Is occasionally um, you think about, and I, I have dreams occasionally about my father as a. Old man, because I'm actually now older than my father was when he died. So it's um, that's a that's a strange feeling. It was a strange feeling when I became older than my older sister. Now I'm older than my father ever lived to be, and so I'll have these dreams occasionally where he has gray hair and and he's kind of a, a more laid back, uh, happier version.
1: Your sister Liz committed suicide in 2006. She left a note, writing that she was going to join your father in a parallel universe. Was her relationship with him very different than yours? Her well, I and you know I don't know what her relationship was specifically with his ideas,
7: but I, I do know that in her relationship with him was closer than my relationship with him, and it might have been because she was the first child and she was six years older than me, and that there, there may have been some bonding that happened early on with her that didn't happen with me.
1: You once said that you and your father could both be described as idea men and anything outside that can be a distraction. What did you mean by that?
7: Uh, Well, I, you know, the older I got, the more I started to see parallels between our personalities in some areas like that. Like uh, the same way that he was kind of always this quiet presence sitting around thinking all the time, sorting out his thoughts. And I I, uh, hear people describing me that way often. And you start to notice over the years that as as much as you try, we all try to be like the opposite of our parents. (laughs) Yeah. But then one day you look in the mirror and your father's staring back at you.
1: There's a theory that's kind of adjacent to your father's work called the pocket universe. Does it ever feel that way to you when you're working on a record or song that you're in this happy little pocket universe?
7: Totally. I mean, it's a great analogy because I, I often when I'm making a record, I I'm, I've just got blinders on, and there is no other universe, and it's like that's one of the things that is easy about doing what I do, and because um, you just it's your entire cause for living until it's done. Um, but the, you know, the price you pay is it's a very unbalanced life.
1: Are you working on something now?
7: I'm working on balancing my life after, after too many years of doing that.
1: Yeah. Well, good luck with that.
7: Thanks. I need it.
5: I had some regrets, but if I had to do it all again, well, it's something I'd like to do.
1: You can hear some more of Mark Oliver Everett's music and watch the documentary about him and his father at studio360.org. coming up
8: we have done this interview an infinite number of times before and we are going to do this interview an infinite number of times in the future and I will be sitting in this studio and you will be sitting in this studio the only real difference that they allowed for was that next time you might have a mole that
1: you don't have this time around huh maybe I'd have that looked at more parallel worlds are just ahead in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC
3: 360.
1: We've all got what-ifs. Walk up to any random stranger in the park, and they'll tell you what they'd do
5: differently if they had a do-over. I would have been a scientist. I'd like to... Thank you, brother. I'd like to make it be like a major discoverer of something. I would have bought
8: that apartment in Park Slope, no matter what. (laughs) I would have made about three-quarters of a million dollars on it if I would bought it when I slipped through my
9: fingers. (laughs) To be honest, I would be 16.
1: And I would have
4: chosen to continue my higher education
9: rather than
3: (laughs) get pregnant and have a baby.
1: (laughs) A lot of us can't stop asking ourselves, That other version of me, that other choice, that other life.
3: Is it better? Yep. That's
8: the question I always have.
1: These are really existential questions. They're fundamental. They're part of what makes the idea of multiple universes so interesting. The thought that somewhere out there, somewhere in time or space, the road not taken actually was taken. These days, scientists more and more are interested in the idea of multiple universes. And there are multiple theories of multiple universes with catchy names like the quilted multiverse and the inflationary multiverse and the ultimate multiverse. This all feels exciting and new, but it's not new. The idea of multiple universes
8: is about 2,500 years old.
1: That's Mary Jane Rubenstein. She's a professor of religion and philosophy at Wesleyan University. And she says that long before nerds with pocket protectors were debating this stuff, nerds in togas were, the atomist philosophers in ancient Greece.
8: Well, for the atomist, the ancient atomist philosophers, the most desirable thing about w- what we're now calling the multiverse um, was that it got rid of the need for a god um, if it is the case that our world is the only world, um, then it's very difficult to explain. You know, how is everything so perfect? How is it that sunsets are so beautiful? Right. How is it that... right? Um, and what the atomists believed was that religion, and the belief in these kinds of benevolent gods, actually caused people to behave terribly to one another. So they wanted to find a different explanation. So their explanation was that it's not the case that some anthropomorphic god or gods made the universe so that it was just perfect the way it is, but that actually our world was just one of an infinite number of other worlds that looked totally different from our world, and that worlds were the product just of Um, just of accident, of particles colliding with one another and randomly forming worlds, and infinity, an infinite amount of space to play in.
1: Which all sounds very modern, infinity and chaos and chance. And, And from what I understand is similar to multiverse theories that are around now.
8: Yes, it sounds a lot like modern physics.
1: But for a minute, let's stay with the ancient Greeks. Uh, Tell me about the Stoics, who had a multiverse theory of their own, but it was about time rather than space? Right. Uh,
8: The Stoics gave us just one world in finite space. Um, But every, you know, trillion years or so, uh, the sun would burn up the whole universe, the whole cosmos, set it on fire, burn absolutely everything, and then just leave a little bit of water and a little bit of air left. And then the whole world would reconstitute itself. So... The cosmos is sort of rebuilt and renewed um, and lives again exactly the way that it had the
1: time before. Literally... You and me and all the and our cats and dogs and th- the same world over and over and over. Yes,
8: over. yeah, we have done this interview an infinite number of times before, and we are going to do this interview an infinite number of times in the future. And I will be sitting in this studio, and you will be sitting in this studio. The only real difference that they allowed for was that next time you might have a mole that you don't have this time around.
1: That déjà vu. I think I've heard you say this before one time, <laughs> right Mary um, Jane. So I can take uh, uh thinking about the multiverse idea I can either say well wow, that's really self involved of we humans to imagine that we're just replicated a zillion times everywhere um on the other hand it maybe it's not so self involved maybe it's maybe it's saying eh I I'm not I am not important, there are billions of me, who cares, whatever, let's chill. I mean, as this notion becomes an accepted part of the popular understanding of the way existence works, what will be the effect, do you think, on on people and the way they live their lives and think about their lives?
8: You know, it's a a great question. Um, Every major development in modern Western science since Copernicus has been advertised as this radical decentering of our importance right right, right? Um, so in the pre-Copernican universe, the sun was at the center and we were so important, the story goes, and we were so important and then Copernicus takes us out of the center of the solar system and then as, as Darwin takes us out of the center of the Garden of Eden, Freud takes us out of control of our own psyches, right? That as science progresses, we learn that we are less and less important than we thought we were. Um, that's one argument, but of course, it doesn't seem to be the case that these purported Decentralizations of the importance of the human have, in any way, contributed to our feeling like we're insignificant. Right? We we still tend to think that we run. Yeah, the planet, that may just right? be a
1: desperate, just- desperate attempt to to rea- reassert ourselves but yes.
8: That's right. So it seems like that's the dance. It's yeah. it's this funny dance between the radical decentering of the importance of humanity on the one hand and then humanity's reactions back against that decentering right. to reassert its importance.
1: So you're a religion professor. What does contemporary religion have to say about this multiverse business? Obviously, Religion and science in all kinds of ways don't uh, necessarily get along.
8: You do, though, run into some fascinating theological problems, things like, for example, if you um if you are operating within a Christian uh, framework, you would need to ask, well, are there inhabitants of those other universes and if there are inhabitants of those other universes um, are they fallen or not right have they have they sinned do all creations fall and if they have fallen do they also need Christ to go there to redeem them which right. is to say is Jesus just you know constantly traveling from universe to universe to get incarnated teach for 30 years and then die or Is see like universe hopping um, so the, if, or you, if you are if you, if there you keep, many
1: many Jesus's uh, you know, and, and maybe there's a Bible for each earth and it's, it's six days here. It was, you know, uh, you know uh, millions of years elsewhere, you know.
8: And if, and if that's the case, then theology's got a serious problem.
1: <laughs> uh, this has been a pleasure. Uh, thank you very, very, very much.
8: Thank you so much, Kurt.
1: Mary Jane Rubenstein has written a book about all this. It's called Worlds Without End. So, how to picture these multiple universes? I mean, not just the idea of another Earth with another version of you and me, but on the biggest, grandest cosmic scale. That's where artists come in. Charles Jenks is an American living in Scotland. I met him about 30 years ago when he'd first become well-known as a critic and writer for popularizing the term postmodern to describe new styles of architecture and art. Since then, he's created a massive installation piece called The Croic Multiverse, deep in the Scottish countryside. His work of landscape art feels both ancient and modern. It's like Stonehenge meets M.C. Escher. Anna Magnuson got a tour from the creator
3: picture this place midsummer's day a vast pale sky a hearty breeze scudding clouds and nestled between the familiar fields and farmlands a stranger landscape gleaming green mounds crowned with rocks a high bare ridge sweeping down to meet circles and corridors of standing stones that crisscross the land like jaggy grey teeth. This is a created landscape within a landscape. Charles Jenks has taken 55 acres of wasteland from a disused open cast mine and transformed it into a symbolic universe. Charles and I started with a windy climb.
0: We're going now up Andromeda Galaxy. We're walking on a little path with rocks to one side. All the rocks are red sandstone that we found on the site, and they're beautiful uh, rocks in themselves. They have these layers that make look like works of art, like what the Chinese called um, moonstones, where they see the moon and the rocks and, and the landscape in the stone. And they're getting smaller and smaller as we walk higher and higher and higher.
2: Sassini Pass, Stonehenge, this is a cosmos distilled to elemental rock and stone depicting that interstellar collision four billion years away a chaos of realignment unimaginable
3: Rab Wilson is a local poet he wrote Multiverse in honour of Charles' creation and read it at the opening on Midsummer's Day
2: I was born 10 miles from here in New Cumnock. I lived in Sankar uh, for 20-odd years, and, you know, I've never really left the area. This landscape and this this part of the world has has been, you know, been my inspiration all my days.
3: You were in the mining industry, and this area of the multiverse used to be an open-cast mine. As a poet, what connections does that make in your head?
2: This area was decimated economically post the miner strike and it has been a, a slow death by strangulation for almost 30 years and perhaps these are the first green shoots that we've really seen writing about this seems very very fitting you know the, the, this ground was was worked by the miners so in a way perhaps this is a, a fitting memorial.
0: i had been talking to scientists and working with them, and the new theory is our universe is one of several and the most beautifully balanced of all universes because it produces life and it produces uh, consciousness and uh, and it's so sensitive that we have to explain why it's so beautifully balanced. You see, it's really counterintuitive that we find ourselves in almost perfect... Universe, And the only way we can explain that scientifically is to say, well, there must be other universes which are not well balanced. It's as if uh, God fine-tuned our universe and took 30 parameters and got them exactly balanced to 1 to the 50th power. In other words, too much of a miracle. You've got to explain it. Scientists don't want to necessarily use God to explain it. They want to say why, how and the multiverse theory is the one that that does that.
3: You don't need to understand the theory of the multiverse to feel the weight of time and eternity and space when you sit among the stones and signs. Charles describes this as a landscape worthy of the ancients. This is his great artistic skill to find paths between science and spirituality, and to look for meaning. And in this particular patch of ancient land, near the town of Sankar on the river Nith and Amphishar, you're both rooted in history and freed by imagination.
0: Sankar means crossroads, among many other old things it means, old seat. it means. And it's the crossroads of the the Nith Valley, which is the low road going north, north-south, and the high road, which is the southern Upland Way, which goes all the way from the west coast to Edinburgh. So you take the high road, I take the low road, and we cross the site. Well, they've been doing that for 4,500 years.
3: Where does this connection with landscape come from with you? I'm intrigued. I mean, you grew up in uh, New England... Were you the kind of boy who was outdoors all the time and exploring and, and, and you know, not coming home until late at night? Where does this love come from?
0: Well, yes, it's true that it comes from Cape Cod. And it's an idyllic place. I was brought up in a house on an island called Boundbrook Island, and every day I'd look out of my sister's window and I could see a panorama of... About 50 miles, actually, over the sea, to Boston. On a clear day, I could see Boston. So, I hadn't thought until you asked me that (laughs) maybe that's uh, been a great inspiration. Always, we were. My father, who was a composer of music, bought this uh, ground for very little money, and um, he built a house in. uh, His his brother designed it, and and. It was in the middle of undisturbed nature all around us. I suppose you could say it was like Versailles in the sense you could see the whole universe around you Mm -hmm. and no people. And my father's composer didn't want a lot of noise around and uh, wanted the quietness of that. So um, that was obviously in my stomach. Black
2: holes, supermassive in their scale, might tear our future Earth from that serene orbit she's held, jolt her form terrene to some alternate universe far away, after our short human
0: race is run. Everything about this site shouts cosmic, and what I've tried to do here is to unpack that idea bit by bit and root people in the idea because landscape is the art form above all that where you're using nature to feel nature, to represent nature, to think about nature. Why do gardeners garden in a way? Metaphysically, they garden to help things grow and to find their place and and nurture it. And I think that's what landscape and gardening can do. You know, painting can't do that. Sculpture can't even, although I use sculpture. And meaning is important. I have to say that when you go into a landscape that you know is meaningful, you look for more meaning and you find meanings that I never intended. And a meaningful uh, landscape uh, is is something that leads the mind on and the imagination on. And I think you have to appeal to the brain and the mind in, in, in a landscape. And that's what I try to do. In cosmic time, there
2: undiminished, we'll be as shadows, alien avatars, when we again are but the dust of stars.
1: You can see images of the Croic Multiverse at studio360.org. A version of that story first aired on BBC Radio 3. Coming up, a TV producer concocts a bizarre series finale for the 1980s hospital drama St. Elsewhere. Half of our
4: audience hated, like wanted to come to the MTM lot and burn us to the ground. And the other half thought it was a fitting part of the show.
1: And nobody knew that episode would end up uniting hundreds of shows. So now a character from Homicide can show up on Arrested Development or The X Files. That's just ahead in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Studio
8: 360.
1: writers of modern animated TV shows have been a little obsessed with the idea of multiple universes, like in this episode of The Family Guy. Apparently, this is a universe where everyone has two heads, one happy, one sad.
9: Honey, have you seen Stewie? I can't find him anywhere. I sure have.
1: He's over there playing in the corner. Of course, a lot of
9: animators started out as comic book geeks. So here we are at the Source Comics and Games in St. Paul, Minnesota, my local comic book shop. This is a very dangerous place for me because I'm a geek with a paycheck.
1: That's James Kakalios. He's a physics teacher at the University of Minnesota. And he says comic books have been playing with theories of the multiverse for ages. And that those storylines mirror actual scientific theories by physicists like Hugh Everett, who first proposed the many-worlds theory in the
9: 1950s. This, of course, this idea was not considered helpful by physicists who were struggling with quantum mechanics and was ignored, even though four years later, in 1962, in flash number 123, experimental evidence is provided when the Flash from the 1960s vibrates over to a parallel Earth and has an adventure with the Flash from the 1940s, experimentally verifying Everett's theory and proving that parallel Earths really exist. Now we have so many Earths in the DC Universe that they published a miniseries, Crisis on Infinite Earths, and they decided to eventually kind of smoosh them all together. Hi, Chad. Hi. <laughs> so Chad here works at The Source, and uh, he could tell you that I'm here...
1: Pretty often. Yeah, <laughs> at least
9: weekly. So, Chad, it is certainly true that practically every comic book publisher has a multiverse. Just
1: about every comic company, at least the big ones, DC and Marvel, for instance, have gone to the multiverse uh, f- sort of format, I guess is the best word for it. It's an easy way for them to have storylines that are going parallel, that they don't have to keep strict sort of continuity. control over continuity and canon. They can have two or three different Supermans all doing things very slightly differently or vastly differently. And then the, the people who are reading the books aren't getting confused. Well, why is Superman young in this one and old in this one? Why is Wolverine an old man here and why is he dead in this other one? You know, there's, that allows them to tell whatever Air stories alert. they want. <laughs> He's been dead
9: for over a year. Yeah, that's true. And he's still dead. (laughs) That's That's the amazing thing. DC Comics is related to quantum mechanics and parallel Earths existing simultaneously. I think Marvel is more connected to cosmology and the inflationary model of the universe. And so the universe is actually much bigger than the universe that we can observe. There are other regions of the universe that are so separated from us that they could have evolved their own separate universes that we can never really connect to and we can never interact with. So there might be Earths there where, say, the X-Men had their Age of Apocalypse storyline, whereas on the Earth here, we have a different storyline with the X-Men going on. The multiverse has been around in science fiction and in comic books nearly as long as the concepts have been around in science. How it's managed to migrate out to the general public in this way is something that I I don't really fully understand. I'm sure that there's somewhere on another earth another professor, James Cicalias, who does have a better understanding of that, but this guy's not answering my calls.
4: All right, 30.77 is the total. are
1: okay. right,
9: Dr. K, have a good day. Thank you. You call me Dr. K because the K stands for action. James DeKalios is the
1: author of The Physics of Superheroes. Even if there really are multiple universes, there is still no conceivable way to travel between them. But a kind of universe hopping does happen on television when a character from one show is somehow transported into another. Back in the 1980s, a TV writer took this idea to a whole new level. Eric Malinsky
10: is holding the remote. Tom Fontana was a producer on St. Elsewhere. You know, the show was... Always on the brink of being
4: canceled. Our, our first season, we were the. there were 100 TV shows on the air. There were only three
10: networks. And uh, we were 99th in the ratings. But the show was critically acclaimed, and they managed to stick it out for six years. Which was great for Tom Fontana because he loves to push the weirdness of what you can get away with on network TV. He also had a real soft spot for crossovers. I was a big, when I was
4: young, I was a big uh, Beverly Hillbillies, Green Acres, uh, Petticoat Junction fan. And I determined that the only one of the characters that had been on all three series was Irene Ryan, who played Granny.
5: I've come to take care of Betty Jo Jones. We got a baby specialist coming from Beverly Hills. That is me. You're a Beverly Hills doctor? <laughs> I'd appreciate it if you kept the Beverly Hills part to yourself.
10: So, his version of that would be having a character from the Bob Newhart show show up as a patient on St. Elsewhere. Or he staged a crossover with Cheers, which is a sitcom, but they filmed their crossover like a drama. So, when Carla, the surly waitress at Cheers, trash talks with the doctors at St. Elsewhere, there's no laugh track. And it's weird.
9: Hey, hey, everybody! These two butchers work at St. Elsewhere! <laughs> Welcome to Cheers, Doctors Jekyll and Hyde.
2: Who recommended this? I overheard Ehrlich talking about it. Good figure.
10: <laughs> the writers also used to keep a list of every crazy scenario that they would love to do for the series finale. And when the show was finally canceled, Tom Fontana snatched that list off the wall and brought it into a meeting with the executive producer Bruce Paltrow. And this was their first pitch. Two of the doctors are having a deep conversation in their office happens pretty often on the show and suddenly (laughs) the idea was there was a flash a mushroom cloud
4: and the two of them went oh my god
10: and then (laughs) and then the show ended very 1980s and paltrow hated it so this was their next idea one doctor says to the other i have a secret that's been weighing on me and i have to confess it right now
4: i was the second gunman In Dallas, the day that Kennedy died. (laughs) And he then opens the drawer, pulls out a gun, and he goes, now that that I've told you
10: I have to kill you. (laughs) Bruce Paltrow was not amused. So Fontana was like, okay, how about this? It's snowing outside. We pan back to reveal the entire hospital is inside a snow globe, which is being held by Tommy, the autistic teenage son of Dr. Westfall, one of the main characters, But in this world, Westfall is not a doctor. He's a construction worker. And another doctor at St. Elsewhere is actually his father, who stays home taking care of his mute, autistic grandson.
5: Hi, Pop. What are you doing? Good. How was your day up on the building? Well, we uh, finally topped off the 22nd story.
10: It turns out the entire series of St. Elsewhere has been a fantasy in the mind of this mysterious boy with the snow globe. And Bruce said, well, it's
4: not the worst one. (laughs) Go ahead and write it.
5: I don't understand this autism thing, Pop. Here's my son. I talk to him. I don't even know if he can hear me. He sits there all day long in his own world, staring at that toy.
4: The response in the mail was about 50-50. Half of our audience hated, hated like, we wanted to come to the MTM lot and burn us to the ground.
10: And the other half thought it was a fitting part of the show. So Fontana went on to produce Homicide Life on the Street, where he continued his love of crossovers. One time, he brought over two doctors from St. Elsewhere, even though that show had gone off the air 12 years earlier. He even staged a crossover with Chicago Hope, which was on CBS, another network. He didn't show those scenes to any of the network execs before the episode aired. So the next Monday after the show aired, Warren Littlefield, who was head of NBC at the time, called me up and goes, you are a bad, bad boy. (laughs) (laughs) And he found a partner in crime, the actor Richard Belzer, who played Detective John Munch on Homicide.
4: He was like, well, let's see. I could be on all the Law & Order shows, this is before he went over to Law & Order, and bit by bit, he just, he would get, they would say, uh, you know, we want you to be
10: in this. And he'd go, well, I have to play Munch. So Munch consults with a lone gunman on the X-Files.
5: Detective Munch, Baltimore Homicide. Did they find her?
7: And
10: a good evening to you. Orders a drink at a bar on the wire. On, you can't press a regular for a whole task. It just isn't done and teaches a class on Arrested Development.
7: We supply the glitter, glue, the crepe paper, and the ready-made template pages for you to decorate and fill out with...
10: This did not go unnoticed birthday. by TV fans who wondered, does that mean that Arrested Development and The Wire are supposed to exist in the same universe? Keith Gow is a playwright in Melbourne, Australia, and he and his friends were talking about this at a pub one night, and they went way further. They wondered if all these shows are linked does that mean all of them were dreamed up by Tommy Westfall, the autistic kid from the finale of St. Elsewhere?
6: And we started just sort of collating a list of shows, and the further we got into it, the more connections we seemed to find.
10: (laughs) They made a grid of the Tommy Westfall universe and put it online. People wrote in from around the world, telling him that Fontana was not the only one who was fond of crossovers. A lot of writers were fans of The X-Files, And they like to incorporate the names of fake brands or companies that appeared on The X-Files into their shows as an homage. Like, take Veronica Mars.
6: The Veronica Mars connection to The X-Files is the uh, Lariat hire car company, (laughs) which was, again, a specific reference to The X-Files, an homage to them. It It wasn't just a coincidence that they used the same fake name.
10: Right now, the Tommy Westfall universe encompasses over 400 shows. And the weird part is that it actually mirrors real theories about the multiverse. Like the idea that certain particles might be able to travel between universes. Of course, in this case, those particles are Detective Munch, or a fictional rental car company. Oh, I was stunned. Tom Fontana was also proud of the fact that Tommy was at the center of this internet phenomenon.
4: I think it sort of adds a whole other layer to the to the idea of what, the, what an autistic person can or cannot do in a, in a very bizarre kind of way, you know what I mean? Because it says people have imaginations regardless of what their conditions are, you know. The, the human mind is an extraordinary
10: thing. And he thinks having these porous borders is good for TV writers. He saw it firsthand when his crew from Homicide swapped cast and crew with Law & Order.
4: What it ultimately does in my mind is enhances the storytelling because somehow it frees you to like go to a place where you wouldn't normally have gone within the, hmm. the restrictions of your own genre or your own TV series, you know. I actually still
10: have the snow globe upstairs. So, really? Yeah. At this point, Tom went up to the second floor of his office and he came back with the snow globe the one that Tommy held in the series finale of St. Elsewhere. It was so much bigger and more detailed than I had imagined.
5: That's an amazing memento. Yeah. Wow. That's so (laughs) cool.
10: And as I stared into the snow globe, I started thinking, Tommy dreams up St. Elsewhere. Two doctors from St. Elsewhere appear in Homicide. Munch crosses over from Homicide to The X-Files. And the Laureate Car Company shows up on Veronica Mars. Veronica Mars's boyfriend worked on This American Life, where she met Ira Glass, who played himself. Ira was interviewed by Brooke Gladstone for On the Media. Brooke has been on our show. That means Studio 360, and half of the shows on public radio, are all part of the Tommy Westfall multiverse. And that includes me.
3: That's it for this week's episode of Studio 360. I'm your host, Brooke Gladstone. My friend Kurt Anderson, world-renowned mime, wrote to me yesterday. Amazingly enough, he says that if he hadn't lost his voice in a yodeling accident in 1999, he would have been the host of this show. (laughs) Maybe in another universe, Kurt. This hour was produced by Lynn Levy and Eric Malinsky. Special thanks also to Chris Roberts and Julia Wetherill. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International.
6: PRI, Public Radio International.
1: Next time in Studio 360... OK Computer turns 20.
9: The first two albums, it was like a learning process for them, but this was the
6: one that really just kind of blew people away.
1: How the album by Radiohead came out of nowhere and went everywhere. Next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.
3: Please could you stop the-